I'm Jared Robinson, and we're going to be talking uh, kind of about this moment in time for churches in relationship to the world, uh, and, and this idea that there are some things uh, that we need to reevaluate in light of what our world has gone through and is going through. And I think in some ways, as much as COVID and the pandemic and all of that stuff has been a unique challenge, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime challenge. It's also, I think, given us the opportunity to realize that, that this moment is not a time for gradual adjustment. You know, I, th- I think in some ways the pandemic, at least for my church, and, and I preach at Southern Hills Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas, there were a lot of things already happening, but they were happening gradually. And it was gradual enough that we could kind of blame other things and not really have to look at, okay, what are we going to do to meet this moment? And while I want to be real clear about this, I think we're kind of entering a stage where things have been gradually changing for a lot of our churches for a long time. And when I say gradually changing, I mean gradually declining. Uh, That I don't in any way want to suggest that it's all our fault that the situation we find ourselves in as churches in North America is something that we created by ourselves. In fact, I think in a lot of ways we are facing headwinds and currents that not only did, did we really not contribute to, but we also don't have the power or the ability on our own to deal with. Um, and so I don't think it does our churches a lot of good uh, to beat ourselves up or to make ourselves feel guilty over the situation we find ourselves in. I think we do need to take some responsibility to the degree that we can, and we realize, yeah, we contributed in these ways. But I think this, this church moment uh, is one where we get an opportunity as leaderships and as members of churches to say, okay, if the world's changed and it didn't ask our permission, what do we do now? How do we respond now? Because gradual change in church in the face of instantaneous in some ways it felt like change in the the broader world is just not going to be enough and I think we all know that. A couple of years ago a guy named Todd Bolsinger wrote a book called Canoeing the Mountains where he used the metaphor for the church. He reached to the story of Lewis and Clark where they had been sent out to try to find a water passage uh, for for trade routes and for you know the, the economic future of the country there was a lot at stake as they went out to try to find this water route that would help them get across the entire continent. And they find out that there isn't one. You know, they get to the Rocky Mountains, they get to the highest peak, they start to look over, and there is no water route. And they can't canoe the mountains. They're going to have to figure out how to change, not just their expectations, but the ways that they're approaching in order to make progress on their journey. So I want to read this quote to you from the book. To be sure, this is an adapt-or-die moment. This is a moment when most of our backs are against the wall and we are unsure if the church will survive to the next generation. The answer is not to try harder to do the things we've always been doing, but to start a new adventure. To see not the absence of a water route, but the discovery of a new uncharted land beckoning us forward. Yes, in the face of the uncertainties, fears, and potential losses, to learn and be transformed. And so the question I want us to be thinking about, both as as church leaders and as members of church communities, 
uh, and as Christians, and that is some kind of version of a question like this, not what do we have to do to try to keep our, our church going? What do we have to do to try to keep our church alive in the face of all of these challenges and headwinds? I'd rather us ask a more hopeful question, which is what would it take for our church family to go on a new adventure together? To me, that's a better way to frame this moment. Because again, the world changed on us and it didn't ask our permission. So now what? And I think all of us have some fear. I think every generation has the fear that the world used to be better, the world used to be simpler, the world used to make more sense, and we felt like we belonged there, and now so many things have changed, we don't know where our place is. I think that, that happens all the time, but I think it's especially true in this moment. And again, I think one of the unique opportunities in this moment is we're all aware of it. Even if we haven't said it before, even if we haven't been conscious about it, we know that in some ways, what's happened in our world has really blown up the bridge back to the way things used to be. And as tempting as nostalgia is, you know, we only talk about the good old days. We never are honest about the bad old days, right? We, we have a hard time admitting that there were challenges back there, too. Uh, it wasn't always smooth, smooth sailing at that point. And God was faithful to us, and God has brought us to this point. So what would it take for us to go on this new adventure together? And in my church, what that means is we're trying to consistently make four choices. And we're being very direct and overt about these four choices. And th those four choices are what I want to kind of talk about and explain for the rest of our time we have this morning. The first is this, that as a church community, in order to go on this new adventure together, we are going to intentionally choose connection over content. Now, I know you're saying, wait a minute. Content matters, and it absolutely does. Here's the challenge. If we're primarily, as churches, presenting ourselves as Christian education centers, we're going to have a hard time getting people going through the headache of getting to our building to sit in a chair in front of me when they can watch me on YouTube later on their phone. And one of the challenges that I think we're facing at the same time an opportunity is almost every church I know of that could figure out how to do it went online for a number of months. Now in Abilene, we went only online where we didn't have in-person gatherings for about three months. My guess is a lot of you were at churches in states and in places where you had to do that for a lot longer. And one of the things, unfortunately, I think we're up against is when I was growing up in the Church of Christ, we, we presented ourselves as the place where we were going to learn the truth. We were going to teach the truth. That's why we were there. That was the organizing principle. Now, community happened on the side of that. It was like a positive side effect. But it wasn't the stated reason. And I think the challenge now becomes if we're going to present ourselves as Christian educators within the church, we're going to have to face the same seismic cultural shifts that higher education is facing when it comes to having to offer everything online and knowing it's not a question of is online better or worse, it's easier. And in our world, it's really hard to argue with ease. 
Even if something's about 70% as good of an experience, if I can get it on my schedule in the form I want to take it, and I can pause it, and I can start it, and I can, it's all on my terms, the reality is, if that's what we hope is going to keep us in front of folks and at the front of the mind of the, of the people who've been coming to church even their whole lives, we're, we're in trouble. And so I, I think we need to admit that, and then I think we need to be really intentional. And, and this has it's been a real challenge in my church as we talked about this. You know, you, you look at various places in Scripture where you know this is true. Jesus in John 5 talks to the, the religious teachers and he says, you know, you examine the Scriptures since you think that in them you have eternal life and they testify about me, but you don't come to me so that you'll have life. He's talking not just about ideas, he's talking about relationship and an encounter. In Acts 4, one of those descriptions of the early church that so many of us are drawn to, the community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, but any of their possessions, uh, they held everything in common they shared. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. An abundance of grace was at work among them all. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge makes people arrogant, but love builds people up. Right? It's, it's not, Paul's not against people knowing things. Uh, he writes the majority of the New Testament right, in his heart thinking through, how can I help you think good, true things about Jesus and about what it means to be his disciple? But he's convinced, like everybody else throughout Scripture, that we're not just offering good, true, sound content. We're offering community. And so in our church, we are really focusing on this idea that we're trying to learn how to love like Jesus, and that means sharing life more than it's sharing ideas. The ideas are there. They're always going to be there. We're always going to talk. There's always going to be content. But we are going to create moments, experiences, venues, where the, the entire primary focus is simply connection. And what we have found is that people are hungry for it. People will come and attend events where we tell them there's not going to be a Devo and a prayer scotch taped to the end of the ice cream social. We're just going to have an ice cream social, right? We're just going to have a fun, family fun night. We're, we're just going to all go together and have this time where we get to talk and we get to catch up and we get to reconnect, trusting that when Christian people do that, God is present and that it opens the door for us to share content in a way that's different than just something you could download and watch later. I think one of the challenges is we are so used to primarily talking about ourselves as offering the true, right ideas about Scripture and about God that it almost feels like this is church light. That we're not doing the serious work of church if the primary thing we're doing is intentional fellowship. But I am convinced that if we don't prioritize that kind of connection, our people will find the content. It may be at our church for a while, but once you're on YouTube watching preachers, you're on YouTube watching preachers. And there's plenty of choices. Um, I, I have been surprised at how many people have reached out to me in the wake of COVID to tell me, you know, they're just traveling a lot and they have a lot of things going on, but they're still watching me on on their phone or on their iPad, and I think, yeah, and I haven't seen you in eight weeks. 
I haven't seen you in three months. And I don't, I don't know what to do with that. And I can tell, they tell me that because they feel like that's the primary thing I want from them as their preacher, is that they haven't missed a sermon. But I miss them. And I want to, to find a way to tell them, yeah, the, the preaching, I, I work hard on it, and I hope it, I hope it helps you, and I hope it opens your mind, but we're doing this following Jesus thing together. And in order for that to happen, we're going to have to find a way to be together. Okay, second, we're going to have to intentionally choose and talk to our people about choosing dedication over distraction. Now, this is going to be true in just about every area of their lives because most of us, I think, are so distracted in our everyday lives right now that it's just about spiritually killing us. In a, in a TikTok world where clips last for less than three minutes, two minutes, one minute, it is really hard to be still and to focus our hearts on and our minds in any sustained sort of way. And I, I think it's good for us to admit that that's a real challenge, uh, that, that it's something that all of us are having to intentionally respond to. And I, I think often about the, the words of, of Paul in 1 Thessalonians where, you know, he's talking kind of in, in chapter 5 about different aspects of just living out our practical discipleship. And then he says, now may the, the God of peace himself cause you to be completely dedicated to him. And may your spirit, soul, and body be held together, kept intact, and blameless at our Lord Jesus Christ coming. The one who is calling you is faithful and will do this. Isn't that an interesting phrase that the, the God of peace himself will cause you to be completely dedicated to him? I mean, another way to say that, right, is that God is completely dedicated to helping us be completely dedicated to God. That it's not something I just throw a switch and decide, okay, I'm going to be focused and committed. It's that I've got to have that spirit, but I've also got to be asking God and being open to how God's going to help me sustain that dedication and that devotion. The other thing that I think our folks need to know is this. If you're, if you're barely committed to church, you should be disappointed in your church experience. Right? The, the quality of our dedication determines the quality of our satisfaction. That's true in every area of your life. If you're only partway into your marriage, you should be disappointed in the experience of your marriage. If you're only half-hearted in your relationship with your kids, you should be disappointed in the way that that relationship feels like it's going. And I, I find so often that a lot of the folks that feel disillusioned or bored at our church what they're struggling with is they don't really understand that, that at our church they're known and needed. It's, it's all optional, right? It's all kind of presented often to them as choices on kind of a spiritual buffet line where they get to pick and choose what parts of church are going to benefit them or their kids. And I, I understand it. I think all of us have moments where we slip into kind of that customer-client mindset wherever we happen to be, but that, that mindset kills a church. You know, I don't blame people for being bored, for being stuck in an audience. So how, how do we get them dedicated enough that their church experience is asking something challenging uh, to them and of them? 
it's, it's difficult, right? Because at a moment when you're hoping that people are going to come back to church after a season, and again, unprecedented, right? That word, I hate that word anymore. Um, that, that unprecedented challenge that we've been in, they're not going to come church, back to church if all we're really doing is saying, instead of watching the show on your screen, could you come and watch it in a chair in our building? There's nothing compelling about that. Certainly not compelling enough to, to make a young couple with a couple of, you know, baby and a toddler go through the headache of getting up, getting dressed, and getting down to your building, right? If, if that's how it's going to be for them, then, then they're going to continue to be distracted. And I think we've got to be clear with one another about, look, it's not easy. What we're doing here is challenging. It's going to take all of us. We need your help. We need you, we need you here. You know, our church suffers when you're not here. Our church is different when you're not here. That the most important words that are going to be spoken on a Sunday morning probably aren't going to be spoken from the stage by the guy up front with a mic. It could be words you speak to someone else in the church lobby before or after worship. It could be the way you listen to somebody, that the Holy Spirit works through you in a unique way, that if you're not there, it doesn't happen. I know we could come on too strong with this. I'm not saying at all that I want us to move to a place of guilt-tripping people. But people do need to be reminded of what they bring to the table when they're fully present and engaged. But if they're distracted, they should be disappointed in church. And I think we've got to put more of, of that responsibility back uh, into their hearts and their minds as they think about that relationship with church. This is the place where in our, our church life we've tried really hard to talk to people about, you know, it's baby steps and it's habits and it's spiritual practices that help you lengthen the amount of time you're able to focus and engage, not just with God's word, but with other people. It takes focus and work to actively listen. Uh, it takes intentionality to make sure you have time in your schedule to actually be with other Christian people. Because again, we're not just distracted on an attention level. Our schedules are fragmented in so many different directions that it's hard for us, again, to fully be present where we are. And so we encourage folks, you know, it's, not, it's like those apps where it says you can go from a couch to, you know, 5K. Do something that helps you over time relearn how to focus. Because if you go from from totally distracted to trying to be entirely and totally focused, it's, it's like me deciding I'm just going to run a marathon two days from now. I'm, I'm going to get injured, and I'm not going to finish, right? That there's, there's got to be moderation. There's got to be a, a sustained effort. It can't, you can't just decide this, and then it happens. Um, and so we're trying to have grace with one another, and we're trying to say, look, we're all at different places with this, but we need you. And we need you to be focused. Okay, third. The church needs to choose intentionally, especially in terms of our relationship to the world, responding over reacting. And let me define reaction this way. Our immediate knee-jerk behavior in light of what is happening. Our unreflected, just instinctive knee-jerk behavior in light of what is happening. On the other hand, here's how I want to define response. Our unhurried, intentional behavior in light of what we'd like to see happen. And that's very different, right? And I, I think this is challenging because we increasingly define authenticity, both, I think, outside of the church and within the church as 
kind of embracing whatever we're feeling naturally in response to something, that that's the true me. I think that's the immature me. I think maturity says, I have a natural reaction to something, then I'm going to stop and ask myself, is this helpful? Is this actually going to get me closer to where I'm wanting to go? Is this going to help all of us get closer to where we're wanting to go? I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, where he says, Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever among you would love life and see good days must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now you'd like the answer to that to be no one. But Peter has to admit that we live in a kind of world where actually you could have somebody who tries to harm you when you're eager to do good, right? He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it's God's will, he doesn't say it is always God's will, right? But if it's God's will for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Okay, how would I say that? I would say it, I think something like this. We're not called to win the culture wars at any cost. We're called to invite others to follow the Prince of Peace no matter the cost. And I think it is so easy, uh, given social media and given the state of uh, cable news and all of the different sources that people are consuming on any given day, and, and all of us, I think, struggling at times to, to know even the true source of a lot of the material that we're consuming in, in a given day. It, it's really easy for us to slip into an us versus them mentality. It's especially easy when we start to feel outnumbered. We feel like, again, the world is changing at a pace that we don't know how to keep up with. And we're pretty convinced that the way the world is changing is always for the, for the worse, right? How do you relate to that kind of world? Well, I, I think you, you have to take Peter's advice. You, you don't distance yourself uh, in a kind of protection defensive posture, a protectionist defensive posture where... You know, it's this challenge. I, th I think often when, when we uh, think of the word holy, we, we think of, you know, set apart for a purpose. But when I was growing up, when I heard people say that, I thought being set apart was the purpose. Like being holy meant I needed to be distant from anyone or anything that might uh, be, be tempting to me or, or destructive to me or dangerous to me or anything. Right? I needed to keep myself pure and unspoiled. But that's not the way Jesus lives out holiness. Jesus doesn't use holiness as a reason to keep distance. He closes that distance with compassion. He takes the risk. I always think of that story in Mark where the leper comes to Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches him while he's still a leper. Then with his words, he heals him. 
It would have been super easy with all these people watching to first say, you're healed, and then embrace him. Jesus doesn't do that. Why not? You know, it's interesting to me, if you read that story carefully, the leper comes to Jesus and says, if, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus touches him and says, I'm, I'm willing. Got all these people watching who now are afraid that Jesus is affected with this guy's impurity, right? his uncleanness. But Jesus is convinced it's not that one bad apple ruins the barrel. It's that one good apple could save the rest. Right? And so he, he models that. But there is a cost because if you read at the end of the description of that story, Jesus says, don't tell everybody, just go to the priest first, present yourself. But the guy can't help himself, so he does tell everybody. Guess where Jesus ends up at the end of that story? Lonely out in the countryside. And so in some ways, in order to help reach this guy where he was, Jesus has to trade places with him. Because that's where the story would have started for the leper that day. He would have been the one out in lonely places in the countryside, not around anybody. If he was following the law, he wasn't supposed to be close to anybody. Jesus is willing to risk all of that to show the power of, of finding a way to engage people in a way where they want to know why we're, we're treating them with the goodness and the kindness and the compassion that we are. And I think too often, if, if we're honest... Church people are just as susceptible as anyone else, being caught up into this culture war mentality of owning the person, right? That in other words, it's not their ideas or their position that's the problem. They're the problem. They're what's wrong. That the best outcome would be for us to silence the other side or that group so that we were the only ones who were able to speak or or share our thoughts, right? Now, again, I don't know that we would ever say it that directly, but if you look at the way we sometimes behave, I think that's, that seems to be the, the approach that we're taking, which is we need to find a way to win this battle. Problem is, when we start to fight the world on its terms, we never win. Because even if we win, we lose. Because we're not modeling the way of Christ. We're, we're taking the name of Christ and then we're redefining what it means to be a Christian in a way that, that I think helps us win these battles, but we lose the war. The church isn't designed to force its way on the world. The church is designed to show the world a better way. And I'm convinced that at our best moments, that's exactly what we've done. We've done it before. We can do it again. We're doing it now. You're going to hear stories this, this week that give you hope. There's always more good going on in the church than we ever know about. Because it's God's church. It's not my church. Or it's not your church. We belong to it, but ultimately, we all together collectively belong to God. What does it mean for us to take seriously this idea that we trust that God is with us in this moment? And that the best way we could win people over is to stop trying to win the argument at all costs. In Ephesians 6, Paul says something that's really important for us to remember, right? He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against 
flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is a consistent perspective in Scripture, which is they aren't the problem. Now, the spirit that may be shaping their lives could be the problem. The darkness, the brokenness, that's the problem. But we should have compassion for people whose lives are being racked by those kinds of dark forces, rather than deciding they are the problem and they are who we need to overcome at all costs. And so we have to find a way, right, to to encourage one another, to have faithful responses instead of uncritical reactions. And so in our church, again, we're trying to, to do this intentionally where we encourage one another. Look, when you find yourself in a moment where you can feel things starting to heat up, where you know there's a disagreement, and why don't you intentionally seek to understand more than you're seeking to be understood? Whether it's online or in person, or, or you know, it's, a, it's in a, a room, a group setting, or it's just a couple of people talking, how do you find a way to, to ask better questions so that you really understand what they're trying to say instead of while they're talking, you're just formulating the point you're going to make that's going to destroy their, their position. People can tell that. They can feel it in the way we interact with them. Another thing we, we've been encouraging one another to do is take a literal deep breath before you act, speak, text, hit, send, or post. Studies have shown if you'll take three to five seconds before you start to speak when you're angry, things always go better. If you could just take a deep breath, and especially if in that that breath you say some kind of a breath prayer. You know, God, give me your wisdom. Help me hear what you want me to hear. Help me see what you want me to see. Help me say something that that person would receive and they're not going to feel attacked. Help me realize, is this the right place for this? You know, social media is not the place to actually change anybody's mind. But man, you'd think everyone on there thinks it's going to work based on how they're, they're engaging one another. No, that, if, if I'm going to have to do something hard, I need someone who cares about me to ask me to do it. Right? Like, I, I, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to do a hard thing if some stranger on the internet or even somebody that I'm Facebook friends, I know who they are, but I haven't actually been in a room with them in 10 years. They're probably not the person who's going to get me to do a hard thing. So is this the right place? Is this the right tone? Is this the right uh, phrase or set of words that's going to work? God, help me. And then the other thing I think we have to do is find simple ways to remind ourselves when we're engaging a broken world that they're not the problem. They are not really our enemy. And when we make that, that shift, everything starts to fall apart. I'm convinced of it. And so what do you have to do to remind yourself when you're engaging somebody? They're, I mean, I literally say this to myself at times. Myself, this person in front of me is not the problem. We may disagree. We may not see eye to eye. We may have significant issues that we're going to have to work through together. But the only way that's going to happen is if I don't, if I don't hate everything about them. And so I think we need to find ways, practical ways, to remind ourselves of that. Okay, finally, 
This one is, is a, one you know already, you've heard it many times in many places, but I think this is a moment for us to remind ourselves the church has to intentionally choose mission over maintenance. Which is not easy, right? Because the unspoken mission statement in most churches is this. Like, it doesn't exactly fit on a t-shirt, but go with me here. We will do whatever we possibly can to keep the people we already have happy so they won't leave. I think that was the unspoken mission statement of a lot of churches before COVID. I think it's even more a mission statement now. You know, I, th- I think you could even have people in your church come up to you and say, why would you do anything that would ever cause anybody to leave at this point? Right? We need to do whatever we can to hold on to every single person we currently have. But we all know this, right? That a church that places more value on meeting the preferences of the saved than reaching the lives of the lost is a church that has forgotten what matters most. I want to say that one more time because I need to hear it. A church that places more value on meeting the preferences of the saved than reaching the lives of the lost is a church that has forgotten what matters most. Uh, In Luke 5, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes, and he says, follow me. Levi gets up, leaves everything behind and follows him, and then Levi throws this great banquet for Jesus' home. There's this large number of tax collectors, Luke says, and others were sitting down to eat with him. The Pharisees and their legal experts grumbled against his disciples and said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners, to change their hearts and lives. Now, I want you to hold on to that phrase, because when you go to Luke 15, right, all the tax collectors and sinners are gathering around Jesus to listen to him. Apparently, he didn't change his his mission because the Pharisees didn't like it, right? They're all still there. The Pharisees and the legal experts are grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus tells him a story this time, a parable. Suppose someone among you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? By the way, I don't know. If I had 99 sheep and I lost one, I might say, I hope that guy finds his way back. I'm not risking the 99 for the one. And oftentimes, I have other church leaders in my church and other church members talking like that to me. Right? Why would you risk the people we have for people we don't? He says, when he finds it, he's thrilled and places it on his shoulders. When he arrives home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, celebrate with me because I found my lost lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. I always feel like Jesus is being sarcastic when he says, you know, that there's righteous people that don't need to change anymore. I think he's saying, I know how you see yourself. I know, I know how you're approaching this. Here's what I want to say, and it's really scary, and I have to remind myself to have courage when I think about this, but I'm convinced the only way we can save the church is by risking everything to help Jesus save the world. It's the only way it's going to work. Uh, and it is such a challenge for us to focus on embracing the mission and possibly 
losing some folks who can't embrace that mission with us. But when our functioning mission statement is to keep the people we already have happy, we will inevitably create a church that's designed more for church people than for unchurched people. Now here's the thing. It's going to cost us, all of us, something. So here's three questions I've asked my church, each member of my church, to ask themselves in light of this. The first is, who is the one that you're willing to leave the 99 for in your life? Who's the one? And if you don't have one, it means you don't have enough non-Christian friends. And I've, I've had people come up to me and confess with tears in their eyes that in Abilene, Texas at least, <laughs> they're not sure they have a non-Christian friend. That every part of their life is, is just layers and layers of Christianity. What would it mean for them to put themselves in a relationship with someone who they know isn't a Christian and not do it so aggressively that that person, no one wants to be your project. You know, nobody wants to be your charity case. Nobody wants to be your notch on the belt to say, they're the person that I saved this year. Look at me. I'm doing a great job here, right? Nobody wants to have a countdown timer that you're imagining over their head of, this is how much time I'm going to put in before you better, you better come to church and then you better get baptized. If we have those kinds of loaded expectations, we're going to mess this up right out of the gate. But if we truly believe that the Jesus way of life is the best way of life, wouldn't we want to share that with someone who isn't getting to experience it? How do we do that, right? The first is we better know somebody. The second thing I've, I've been asking my church folks to, to ask themselves, what about our church needs to change so that we can reach new people? What about our church needs to change so that we can reach new people? I do not believe in change for the sake of change. I don't. And I think sometimes churches can kind of get into that whole, we're going to innovate and we're going to try new things and we're just going to try new things for the sake of trying new things. I think part of the reason we do that sometimes is it kind of breaks the hold of traditionalism. Uh, and, and so we feel like, okay, if we learn to do new things, then we're just more comfortable with doing new things. I understand that. But I still think that you end up using a lot of your le leadership credibility if people start to think you're just trying new things to try new things. But we should be asking ourselves, what can we change so that we could reach new people? Here's where it gets more personal. What are you willing to sacrifice so that our church can reach new people? Because ultimately, if as a membership, each one of us doesn't know how to answer that question of what, what thing do I love about this church? What, thing, what, what, what aspect of, of my preferences are currently being met that I would have to sacrifice to reach someone new, that I'm not going to make the leaders force that change on me. I'm going to choose it. I'm going to embrace it for the sake of reaching somebody who isn't currently a part of our church family. Ultimately, I think if we have churches where church leaders are trying to embrace a mission, but the membership has no interest in doing that, you're headed for some kind of a shipwreck. Right? You're, you're headed for either the, the leaders leaving or the preacher leaving or, or, or members leaving. And, and you're not really going to come back to this place of saying, okay, not only do we want to be a church where you're known and you're needed, we want to be a church where you're asked to sacrifice for the sake of others. That a great worship experience would not be one where from the beginning to the end it engages you fully. 
but rather it would be a worship experience where there's a portion of it that helps draw you closer to Jesus, but there's other things that are happening that don't really do much for you, but you watch as the Holy Spirit uses that experience to help reach somebody else, and you love them enough to sit through that experience and participate in it, even though it's not your favorite thing. You know, there's those, those I grew up singing those uh, Stamps Baxter songs, you know, and there's a part of me that loves those songs. But there's a whole section of our church that they just eye roll. You know, once the boom, 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 you know, those kinds of choruses start. You got a whole group of people that are like, mm, I'm out. And then on the other hand, I have people that anytime we, we learn a new song, there's a part of them that they just can't help themselves, to, you know, they make fun of it somehow or another. I mean, I do this sometimes. There's times, new, newer music, one of the, the throwaway unfair criticisms I often throw at some of the new songs, Jesus is my boyfriend, you know? Well, if I say that in front of my daughters who love songs that you wouldn't believe this were written in the last couple of years instead of, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, I should care enough about my daughters, right, for us to have times in worship where it's just not, it's not for me. And I know it's not for me. And what would happen if when people entered a, an experience or a program or a worship service at church that they come fully participating, excited that it's not just for them, that they know it's for other people too. Um, that we, we mutually sacrifice so that someone else in our church or someone else who isn't yet a part of our church could be brought closer to Jesus, if our members aren't embracing that part of the mission, if we're trying to drag them there, it's going to be really hard for us to ever effectively, faithfully reflect the embrace and the invitation of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, that the church is uniquely equipped to live out but if it's about my preferences and the songs I like and the songs I don't like or the, the things I like and the things I don't like, there are plenty of other communities that people can be a part of that have nothing to do with Jesus, where it's all pretty much about them. And they feel okay that it's about them. But church should be the place where I say, no, I'm not going to let it become that. It's, it's not going to be just about me. It's, it's going to be about me trying to help you grow closer and closer to him. So, choosing, connection over content, working to choose dedication over distraction in a, in a crazy distracting world, stopping and taking a breath so that we can choose to respond instead of just react, and then as a church saying to one another, we exist not just to maintain this and to keep it going, we exist for the mission. And what do we need to give up? What do we need to sacrifice so that we can actually live out what we say we value? At Southern Hills, that's, that's kind of the, the four big conversations we're having. And I got to tell you, we don't all agree. But that's not the point. The point is we're having the conversation. And it's, it's been really, really good for me to realize that while I may be able to ask those four questions that God's going to use all of us to find new answers together. Thank you for coming to class. Appreciate it.